Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer, which was a self-given name standing for bind, torture, and kill, is now the prime suspect in at least two more unsolved murders. The 1976 disappearance of a 16-year-old cheerleader in Oklahoma and a 22-year-old woman who had been tortured and murdered in Missouri. Everything is so mind-blowing still, like this many years later. And like, honestly, I'm going through some like ongoing stuff with my father. So we don't really know where like that's headed. Um, there's some cold cases being looked at and that's been in the news. And so that's Carrie Rawson, Dennis Rader's daughter. I recently spoke with her about the shocking news. Turns out she has been helping investigators, talking to her dad once again and trying to get victims' families answers. But before we dive into the case, I want to remind you that this is for mature audiences and it still might not be for everyone. And at the end of the podcast, a shout out to an investigator who wrote a review on Apple Podcast. It really helps, so I appreciate it. Now the shocking news, the BTK serial killer's possible other victims. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for this episode, Serial, BTK's Possible Victims. In August of this year, 2023, authorities in Osage County, Kansas, made a shocking announcement. Dennis Rader, known as the BTK serial killer, was the prime suspect in the 1976 disappearance of Cynthia Kinney, a 16-year-old cheerleader who was last seen at a laundromat, and the death of 22-year-old Shauna Beth Garber, whose body was discovered in December 1990 in McDonald County, Missouri. An autopsy revealed that she had been raped, strangled, and bound, the same M.O., modus operandi, as Raider. Authorities started to investigate Raider after learning that he included the phrase bad laundry day in his writings, and knowing that he worked as an ADT security installer at the time of Kinney's disappearance. And wouldn't you know it, the bank across the street from the laundromat had a security system installed around the same time. But it's unclear if Raider was that installer. That investigation sparked a fresh look at other unsolved cases, including the death of Shauna Beth Garber, because her murder fits his M.O. I recently spoke with Carrie Rawson, Raider's daughter, about the possibility of additional victims. How are you holding up? How are you doing? (laughs) Um, I shouldn't be laughing. I've been laughing a lot just because, like... Everything is so mind-blowing still, like, this many years later. And, like, honestly, I'm going through some, like, ongoing stuff with my father, so we don't really know where, like, that's headed. Um, There's some cold cases being looked at, and that's been in the news. And so between, like, um, Idaho 4 case and then stuff coming out on my dad, um, and now Long Island, (laughs) it's, like... I was like, people just need to, like, stop murdering, but, like, that's not going to happen, right? Like, we know that. So what are we, what are we going to do about it? Um, Like, in my lane, like, my lane is to be, like, 
you know, to try to speak up for families like mine and like what Rex's family is going through, I imagine. Like, we don't know for sure, but. Well, you brought up the fact that um, your dad, BTK serial killer, um, is being investigated for something else. What's the latest with that? Um, so the latest right now is that there is a 1976 cold case with um, Cynthia Kinney um, out of um, Osage County, Oklahoma. Um, she was a missing person. She went missing from a laundromat in Pacheska, um, and no one knows what happened to her. And so starting in around January of this year, my dad was contacting um, other outlets and letting them know that he was being questioned on on Cynthia Kinney. And then um, in the end of May or early June, my dad contacted outlets again and told him he was being investigated on Shauna Garber, who was a woman that was found um, dis- like murdered in um, the fall of 90 in um, just in the southwest corner of Missouri near Joplin. Um, and so that one is being looked at by um, by investigators in McDonald County. What's uh, what's your reaction to that? Do you think that it's possible? Um, this spring, I was on record several times saying I don't, I, I didn't know, and that I didn't, it didn't fit my dad's mo. And as far as we knew, um, it was the tin. Okay. Yeah, because he also is kind of an attention hog, too. Yeah, my father's a huge narcissist. So he's a sexual sadistic psychopath and a pathological liar. And so he absolutely loves the attention. But if you will go back and look in these cases, he's actually saying he didn't do these. And for somebody like my dad, and honestly, somebody for Rex in Rex's case, I don't see either of them ever claiming anything they didn't do. In August of 2023, investigators went to the address where Carrie's childhood home once stood. They dug under concrete where a shed and a swing set had stood nearby and recovered several items of interest, including pantyhose. Raider has denied any involvement and maintains he only killed 10. But prosecutors are giving the 78-year-old an option to cooperate with no death penalty on the table. We will keep you posted. Rader was convicted of killing 10 people, including two innocent children. When he pleaded guilty, he admitted to trolling for victims on his off time, stalking them and killing them. He called his victims his, quote, projects. After his conviction, he told local KAKE-TV that a demon had got inside him at a very young age. The criminology major, that's right, just like Koberger, hid in plain sight like the alleged Long Island serial killer, who Raider calls a copycat. Because like Rex Hewerman and killer clown John Wayne Gacy, Raider lived an overall normal life, it would appear. He was a father of two, active in the church, even Boy Scouts. I think sometimes people have a hard time believing my family didn't know. Because they're like, well, this was in your house. And I'm like, my mom and I... You know, we would have ran screaming out of there if we had known. I'm my mom and I and the rest of my family have basically been waiting since he was arrested for the jail or the detectives to call us and tell us he's dead. Like my mom never expected him to last in prison. The arrest of Raider and learning what he did was traumatizing for his family who say that they had no idea. 
It was Rawson's DNA that would lead to BTK's capture, using the same forensics that led to the capture of the Golden State Killer and, allegedly, the Idaho 4 Killer. In 1999, Carrie wrote a tell-all book titled A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. I interviewed Carrie a few years back and want to play part of that episode and interview because it's a good background on Dennis Rader, known as the BTK Serial Killer. Investigators, thank you for joining me for episode 24, Serial BTK which takes us to Wichita, Kansas, located in the Great Plains of the United States. Raider grew up in the city he would later terrorize. From a young age, he harbored sadistic, sexual fantasies about torturing helpless women. He was also known to kill and hang small animals. He practiced voyeurism and cross-dressing. Raider would often dress up in women's clothing and a female mask while bound. He pleasured himself pretending to be his victims. From 1974 to 1977, he killed a family of four and three others by suffocating, hanging and stabbing his victims with ropes, knives, bags, and belts. He also took pictures of his attacks that he called murder projects and sent letters to police and newspapers taunting them, prompting more fear in Wichita. In fact, this was part of his confession call to police in 1977, after Raider killed Nancy Fox. You will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing, Nancy Fox. I'm sorry, sir, I can't understand you. What is your address? For about 10 years that followed, he was quiet, in what police would call a cooling-off period. Then in 1985, he started killing again. Carrie says she never suspected her father was ever capable of being a monster. I, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you talking to me. Um, I really know that this is just such a tough subject and I understand that you deal with PTSD and all of that. I'm pretty good at talking about it. It's just like the talking isn't bad. It's when other things come up. You know, like with that PTSD, like I'll spin up from something else and then I can't, like I got to go to bed. <laughs> so, and then I'm home, like my husband's home, the kids are home. So like, it makes it rough, like to have to talk about these things. Like you just like, we have a noise machine on outside, like in the next room. Cause we're like in a small apartment. So yeah, like he said, I was talking too loud to the journalist today. And I was like, I don't know, like you can't really go to Panera and have these conversations Especially in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, in the pandemic. Um, yeah, because obviously you don't want the kids to hear, you know, the things that you're talking about, right? No, because we don't even use the acronym around them. I mean, I can talk openly with you. We've got the noise machine. I mean, I was being quite open today with a journalist. So, but we don't, you know, we try to minimize like the BTK acronym around them and, you know, like they knew I wrote a book and they know like grandpa's in prison. They know his name's Dennis, you know, and they, they like, no, I sometimes write him, but like, we don't like, they, they don't really know the details, obviously like they're nine and 12. So we're kind of working them up. Like, you know, we don't want them to end up like on the internet someday. Like why was mom on the internet or grandpa? So we've slowly been like stepping them up, but we're really protective, like with social media right now. Like our kid is 12. She wants to be on. I'm like, legally, you can't even be on till you're 13. And like, no, you know, like the kids with TikTok and everything. I'm like, no, 
like, you're fine. <laughs> so we let her Zoom her cousins in Kansas. Talk to me about life before you knew anything. Um, normal. I mean, I was just a boring kid from Kansas. You know, like, like I had a perfect life. I tried to write that in my book of like, you know, American dream, you know, I mean, we did, we were middle class, you know, a small house, but like we went on vacations, you know, I camped and fished with my dad. I tried to make that clear in the book, that relationship was vital to me. He was my best friend. A lot of the time, if we weren't like arguing. So like I, it was important to me. Like I focused on a grand Canyon trip. It was a long part of the book. You know, we even had edited it down, but it was very important for me to have that in there to show a long form story of this normal relationship with this man. Because, you know, as I was speaking this morning to the to the to a someone, the public does not believe me and does not believe, like, say, D'Angelo's daughters or, you know, I, I as far as I know, Ted Bundy has a daughter like um, less more there's there's other women and men out there like me and they don't believe us you know for those of us that have did not have like I was not sexually abused I was not physically abused I had mental and emotional abuse at times but they don't believe us when we say like I had a loving normal relationship with my father so when everything happened I lost all that and I questioned all of that and I didn't, you know, and I had detectives and, you know, CNN and everybody tell like, you know, I, I have a detective I'm close to still that believes like he'll, he'll be blunt with me. He helped. He was one of the key people to help catch my dad. And he says, like, he says every day of my life with my dad was a lie, you know, and I, I push back and I'm like, no, that's not true. You know, I like, I've been very clear when I was with my dad, I was with my dad, you know, and there's a quote out there by a police detective, Wichita police detective that Dennis Rader is 90% BTK, 10% Dennis Rader. And I push back and say, it's the other way around 90% Dennis Rader. And like, I, I, I don't personally know BTK and there's been a lot of like compartmentalizing a lot of therapy to kind of put those two guys back together. But day to day, he's my dad. And I, and I try to make that clear in social media, you know, because people will talk to me and they'll say, well, BTK, blah, 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 you know, or you have the mansplainers that come by and try to explain your life to you, you know, because they have a degree in criminology. And I'm like, he's my freaking dad. Like, don't come over here and try to educate me about my dad. Like, you know, and so I always push back and I'm always like, he's dad, like, call him dad. You know, if you're talking to me, like he's, he's dad, you know, because that helps me. Again, when this is happening, Raider is not a suspect. He had the community's trust. He was a father of two, a husband, volunteer Cub Scout leader, the church president, and even helped many people install security systems in their home, in his neighborhood, who were in fact worried about this BTK killer. At the time of his arrest, he was working as a dog catcher and compliance officer for the city. Carrie was in her early 20s, newly married, and had no idea her world was about to come crashing down. Raider had sent a floppy disk to police that traced back to his church. Detectives, at this point, had letters, photos, the 911 call he made, and the BTK's DNA from crime scenes. They began to suspect Raider eventually, 
but with no hard evidence, they couldn't link him to the crimes. Yet, using the same method of forensic genealogy as investigators in the Golden State Killer case, detectives seized Carey's college pap smear through court order and ran it against DNA from the crimes. It was a familial match to the BTK. On February 25, 2005, Rader was arrested while driving near his home. An officer asked him, do you know why you're going downtown? His response, I have my suspicions, why? In hindsight, I knew. So the night, the night of my dad's arrest, I was going to try to match timelines to alibi my father. And unfortunately, I came across that audio from 77 and I knew it was him. But I had never heard the audio in 04. And people, you know, the public is like, well, it was being played all the time. And I was like, I wasn't alive in 77, you know. And then I wasn't in Wichita in 04. I read like maybe two stories about BTK. I was like, that's weird. I talked to my mom once. If I had been home, it would have been a very different story. And it might have had a very bad ending for, my, for me. So he's dad until this arrest in, was it 2005? Walk me through that day and what happened and what you knew. Yeah. So um, in 2000, so my father committed um, 10 murders starting in 1974. Um, up through 1991, he had large gaps, primarily women. Um, there were two children that he murdered part of a family in 74, the Oteros, Um uh, was a dad, a mom, two kids, and then left three kids orphan. And then after that, it was women. So three of those happened after I was born. Um, his last was in 91 when I was in middle school. So I had never heard the acronym BTK. I knew our neighbor lady was murdered down the street in 85. That was his. I knew that was unsolved. But no one, I had never, I was like six. And so I never had heard the BTK acronym. And then in 2004, my dad came out of like almost slumber. Like he, he had stopped communicating with the police in 79. There was one letter in 88 involving a case that didn't involve him, but he, the police had assumed he was dead or in jail. And he came out of the slumber on the 30th anniversary. They had ran something in the newspaper and on TV and it kind of triggered him, I guess. And he, he, he decided to contact the law enforcement in 04 and play what he called cat and mouse games. And that's what got him caught because if he had not come back out, he would have never been caught. But he would dress up. We know that. Um, so was, was any of that from day-to-day -day life that he used in for like Halloween and then he took it for this or do we know any of that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so quickly, like in 04, he played cat and mouse and then was communicating him doing these drops with them. And they had like somebody speak to him and they caught him then in 05 and then, you know, told us. And so, you know, there's a lot of hindsight when you look back. Um, yeah, there are. I found out at the um, sentencing about like the dressing up and like using my grandparents basement for that. You know, I've I've looked at all the photos that are out there. It's taken me a long time to process that a lot of that I had to walk. Literally, I would take my laptop into therapy and we would pull up crime scene photos or pull up those fathers, put photos of my dad that he's well notoriously known for. I honestly don't recognize any of that stuff. And I don't really honestly know where he kept it. Um, 
our house was like a small three bedroom, maybe 1200 square feet. I mean, they found the evidence of like driver's license and jewelry of the victims underneath some floorboards in our hallway in a, in a false bottom. But that other stuff, I don't know. I mean, you knew like not to get into dad's closet. He was very OCD, very strict. He could be like, you're, you're not going to, it's not going to go well for you if you got into dad's stuff. So you just left dad's stuff alone and he would like keep things locked. You know, I mean, there's some like pretty lousy movies out there that depict it completely wrong. Like I cannot handle Mindhunter. It would put me right back into serious therapy. But from the few clips I've seen, I know like it's not accurate. You know, so like there was stuff he kept in a shed and things, you know, with hindsight, you know, there, you know, there's things like, like, okay. So with Mrs. Hedge, she was the one that was murdered down the street. She was a widow. He set up this whole rouse where like he went to a bowling alley. And so he had, he never bowled. But he used this like fake old bowling bag that was like maroon, I believe. And then he rode in a cab and acted like he was drunk. He had left his car there. And so he had put his murder, his murder kit, he has a word for it, but, you know, murder kit in that bag. And so that detail did not come out until probably at least 2005. But I can remember that bag from 85. Like I remember seeing it once in my house. But like he had a really good relationship with my mom, but she wouldn't have, he was so trustworthy and such a good husband, you know, such a good father that you didn't really ever push. And so I do write in my bag. um, I mean, in my book, I do write in an incident of where she found a small, like type of woman's handgun that would be like you would wear on your ankle. So like she found that one time in a fanny pack, like just in our living room, like in their, their, the desk that they shared. And like, she freaked out on him again. Like, w- did he use that in a crime? Like, you know, it matches up to kind of the last murder. I mean, that thing is my, because you're talking 30 years, you're talking massive cases, so much evidence. I could spend so much time going down that hole you know, and I, and I did to write, he stole um, Mr. Otero's watch. It was silver and he used to wear a silver watch. Was that Mr. Otero's? I don't know because I have always assumed it was his, but there's a photo of him with my mom when I'm a baby being baptized and he has a watch on. And in the second case, Kevin Bright, who survived my dad, two gunshots to the head, said the man had a silver watch on did. And that was two months after the Otero's did he have Otero's watch on like that kind of thing could have possibly solved that crime in 74. But then my brother and I wouldn't be here. So you can, you can go down. I mean, I spent four years researching and writing. You can go down those holes all day. It's easy in hindsight to say, Oh, well that's this or that's that. But I don't think, I think sometimes people have a hard time believing my family didn't know because they're like, well, this was in your house. And I'm like, yeah, dad was a stamp collector. You know, like there were things in the house, you know, like they make it seem so easy in like the documentaries and the, and the movies. And it, you know, it ticks me off because like my mom and I, you know, we would have ran screaming out of there if we had known. 
Rader pled guilty to 10 counts first-degree murder. In court, he flipped a switch and detailed his attacks. Did you know these people? No, that was part of my, uh, I guess, my what you call fantasy. These people were uh, selected. Now, when you use the term fantasy, is this something you were doing for your personal pleasure? Uh, sexual fantasy, sir. I see. So you went to this residence, and what occurred then? And after I tied her hands, uh, she broke that, and we started fighting. And we fought quite a bit, back and forth. All right, she was physically fighting you? Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. What happened then? I uh, finally got the hand on her and got a, uh, a nylon sock and started strangling her. Based upon your statements to the court, I will find there are factual bases for each of these pleas of guilty. I will accept these pleas of guilty and adjudge you, Dennis L. Rader, guilty of murder in the first degree. I was pretty shocked by the stuff that came out in the trial and the victim's impact statements. Think about, like, compared to Golden State a couple days ago. You know, there's, I, I don't know, I'm not super familiar with the cases because they trigger me pretty bad, um, Golden State does, but like I warned one of the victim's family members that I have a relationship with, like, brace yourself, you know, e even as much as you think you know, you know, it's going to be a lot. So talk to me about like, you know, that, that a little bit. So, you know, you're going through this arrest, then you're going through the trial. What are you thinking during this? Because to you, he's only been your dad. Yeah, he was my dad up until February 25th, 2005, when the FBI knocked at my door and told me he was also BTK. You know, I, and then you just, I went into shock. Unfortunately, they sent like a, um, an accountant, like a criminal detective accountant type guy, not like a hard, hard crime guy. And I don't know why I was in Detroit. Like, they just randomly picked somebody. So he wasn't very good at, like, informing somebody like me, you know. So he didn't handle it real well. It was hard for him. And then I write in the book where he's saying, he said flat out, your dad's BTK, not we think he is or we suspect. He's like, he is that because they had matched my DNA, which I found out later. I knew BTK was known for strangulation primarily. Um, there was one stabbing, but that was only because it was interrupted. Otherwise, it would have been a strangulation. So my dad always strangled. And I mean, BTK, I was known for that. And so I also had known as a kid that my neighbor lady, Mrs. Hedge, she lived seven houses down from us, had gone missing, and that they had found her body on the country like 10 days later, and that she had died from being strangled. And somehow I knew that at six, like a six-year-old shouldn't know that. And so I either knew it from like my parents talking or from the news being on because back in the then the TV was on and the kids were around. So I'm sitting there on my couch in Michigan in 2005. I'm in shock. I had been defending my father saying, no, there's no way he could be this man. And then I started asking for the dates. And, you know, so he said, well, there were these cases in the 70s. And I was like, well, I wasn't alive. And then he goes, well, there there, um, there's one that was suspected in 86. And so I start trying to do the math. In September of 86, we had been to Disney the month before. I couldn't really match that up. And then it hits me. And I'm the first one that brings up the neighbor lady. I think of anybody. Oh, Mrs. Hedge was murdered. I think it was unsolved. It was a strangulation. And at that moment, I, we were only probably 
maybe an hour in of talking, maybe less, my stomach sunk. And I knew it was like something in me knew that that was dad. And they had looked at BTK for that one. And they had looked at him for another one for 91. That was a few miles from our house, but they never had looked very hard because he changed the MO. So he removed the bodies in those two cases, all the other cases, like he had communicated in the seventies, very early. I have done these cases. He left the bodies in the two cases near those were farther from home in, in Wichita spread out when they were near his home, which made him uncomfortable as a suspect. He changed the MO and removed the bodies. He didn't change the manner of death and he cut the phone lines, but he removed the bodies. When's the last time you've spoken to him? Um, I've never spoke to him on the phone. I've never seen him in person since he was arrested. So the last time I was in person with him was December of 04 when I was home two months before his arrest for Christmas. Um, we write letters. Um, I have basically cut him off recently because he's just like I was talking about with his fan club. He's very untrustworthy. There's been stuff in the news about him like sending like mo- mo- like the um, murder memorabilia websites like he he sends stuff to people and then they sell it and then they send him money. It's like totally against the son of Sam laws. So like he's been doing that kind of stuff. Like you can just Google it like teeth and got sweatpants and God knows what. So like he's, he's 75 now. I don't know if he's got some dementia or what he's got going on, but he's more and more lost again. You know, he, he had come back around for a while where I could communicate with him and, and I can't, you can't read his letters. He's got very small writing. He's well known for it. You have to scan him in and you have to blow him up so you can read it. So when I like, I share some of my letters in the book, I had to sit down and I had to um, basically translate all my father's letters, you know, for the book. That was very difficult. And, you know, sometimes I'll do it for a journalist or something, or I'll, I'll vouch something. Somebody will be looking into something and they'll be like, is this legit from your dad? And I usually can, you know, I know enough to know that that artwork is my dad's or that's my dad's signature. But my dad's just gone back off the rails um, over more and more over the last five years. Do you think that there are other victims associated with BTK? Yeah, I mean, that's always been out there. Honestly, after Catherine, I don't know how familiar you are with Catherine Ramsland's book. She worked with him. Um, He's an unreliable narrator, is a narcissist, psychopath. So, you know, you can't really believe what he says. But because of some things he brought up, um, as far as I understand, some Wichita detectives did go back and bring some unsolved cases to him. And they cleared him on those. It's always going to be there, like, you know, he was such a talker though. And he, he, they had him on eight and he gave up the other two. The one that I gave up, I gave him up on. Like when I, when I told the FBI agent about Mrs. Hedge, she was number eight. The, he stopped and called that one in. So they knew to, knew to go back and look at that, but they did not originally arrest him on that one. And on the 10th one, Mrs. Davis, I did not have any knowledge of that. He gave that one up. And he had evidence, like I said, direct, like driver's license and jewelry. 
like those were his prized possessions and he had held some of that for 30 years and he only had that for the 10 victims. So, and he was notoriously like a Nazi kept logs. And so he had logs and journals of everything he had done and everything, everybody he had stalked, every home he had broken into. And they, so they went through the detectives went through everything and they contacted everybody that they could and making sure they were one alive, you know? And so, unless my dad just sat on one to have fun. No, they're, 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 they're I would say they're probably 90% confident. They got all of them. I think people always want to make people like my father out to be bigger than they are, but they're just, they're just a human. Like they're not a human like you or me, but they're not, it's not, he does monstrous things where he's done evil things, but he's not a monster and he's not evil. Um, have you ever spoken to the victim's families? Um, I have not. Um, early on, we gave them a lot of privacy with, um, they needed to go through the trial and we did not want to be there. We wanted them to have that for them. Um, we couldn't handle it anyway. And then since then, um, we've all just sort of given each other each other's peace and space. You know, there was a, there's been a few documentaries now I've been a part of where they were part of it too, but we were filmed separately. So, you know, we were, we're kind of, our stories overlap, but we we don't have any contact. Um, as you know, they've been supportive of us and we've tried to be supportive of them and let everybody heal on their own timeline. When we talk about your dad and when we talk about, you know, you, you've cut off communication and he's basically no longer your dad to you. Are you going to be sad when he dies? Um, I'm sure it's going to hit me like the loss of that man that was in my life the first 25 years, but now he's been gone 15. I'm my mom and I, and the rest of my family have basically been waiting since he was arrested for the jail or the detectives to call us and tell us he's dead. Like my mom never expected him to last in prison. And there's a conversation in my book with, with my mom and me and, um, a pastor and the pastor had spent a lot of time with my dad early on. And he said, Oh no, he's a survivor. Like always has been a survivor. He'll do just fine. And I agreed. I said, no, he's, he's hardcore survivor. Like he'll be just fine, you know? And he, he has been like, he, my father has a routine. He's well known for this routine and you know, the way he handles things. And he, I mean, I know it devastates my dad to have lost his family, but it's also very hard for my dad to not be able to be outside, to not have freedom, to not be able to do the, those, you know, other sorts of crimes that the stalking and all of that, like, like my dad, I think it killed my dad the most to have lost his freedom and then to also have lost his family. My dad isn't insane by any means, but he's done insane things, but he's not necessarily all the way home reachable. And so when he is reachable and I'm one of the only people that can get through to him all the way. And when he read a large article in 15 about what my family had been through, he did write. And he said, I realized you guys are the eighth victim family. And I was like, yes, that's what the law enforcement has been saying for 10 years. You know, but he did. He wrote a poem right after he got arrested called Black Friday. Um, again, you can Google it. And he talks about he realizes what he's done and what, you, you know, now that 
we were the last victims. Did you ever visit him in prison? What was that experience no. like? No, no, I never went. And uh, again, it's because early on the media was so insane. Like originally to get me to my mom, we flew me into Kansas city instead of Wichita. And I was in Northern Kansas protected with my family. She was for a while. She never slept again in that home. The media were camped out like insane at all my other family's homes, knocking on doors, you know, the trucks, people were offering money to my in-laws to, to like, spill the story. They were offering money to our college friends. It was just insane. Somebody stalked my mom and put her in the National Enquirer. So like due to the media, I knew there was no way I could walk into prison, but I also knew I, I don't think I could ever handle it. And now that I know that I have PTSD like some people were said like, well, maybe it would be more healing for you to go see him in prison, but he's in a maximum security prison and to see him like he's, it would literally be like, I'm talking to you because I would have to go in the prison, but then I would talk to him on video. So wh why would I put myself through that? Because part of my PTSD triggers are, are guns, uniforms, anything to do with police. Like I adore them. I, they saved our family. They possibly saved our lives, but I have a very hard time being around them. <laughs> like their unit, like it sets me off if I'm not prepared. The last time I heard his voice was 2005 at the trial. And so I had not heard his voice between, I didn't watch any documentaries, you know, no video clips. I had not heard the man's voice from 2005 until 2018. And I was, filming with 2020 and they slipped in some audio that we weren't expecting uh, of my father making a call. He called in a crime, his um, seventh murder from 77. He called, he called that one in and they played the audio of that. And you can see it um, on 2020 of like me, like needing a second. <laughs> and of course they felt it. And so then when I went out to Dr. Um, Phil, they also started to play audio and the publicist literally like ran down the hall and told like the booth stop it or she walks like, you know, because like it had been clear you, you don't do anything without like we have to prove it because she's a victim, you know? So like, you can't, can't just surprise her <laughs> on TV. Right. You know, right. Exactly. You know, and that goes back to the whole PTSD thing. You know, yeah. I mean, that's what it is. Right. And it's like, why would Dr. Phil set off my PTSD? You know? And so they're like, knock it off, you know? But then like, he was helpful because he told me he, he put, he put images up on the side of the Mahana screen of my BTK's timeline and crimes and my timeline. And he, he said, you stay above your timeline. Like, don't think you need to go below that timeline and learn anything else. You stay above your timeline. You know, like that really stuck with me, you know. And then after we taped, he like hugged me and talked to me some more. You know, like that was that was impactful, like to have somebody speak that truth into you. I think that that is pretty much what your part of your life's mission is now is helping others. It is. I mean, I didn't, ex I expected to just live a quiet private life after P 
people said, oh, your family went into hiding. I was like, that was bull crap. Like we weren't in hiding. Like we were with family. And then we went, my mom stayed at her church. She stayed at her job. Like she lives in Wichita. That's not hiding. You know, I, we moved apartments after our lease was up. We were not hiding. Like we had a PO box for a few years. That's about the amount of the hiding we did. It was more just about trying to put your life back together and live a normal life, you know, and and get away from the the notoriety of it. Today, he is serving 175 years at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas with no possibility of parole. That's where this man will die. He is locked in solitary confinement, not allowed to do TV or phone interviews, but he can still write letters. He craves attention, carries attention. I think that I read something. Uh, it was on one of your social media accounts. I don't know if it was for your book, your Facebook, or if it was your Twitter. But I remember recently you had to write something like, you are now crossing a line. You are stalking me. What was, yeah. what goes on? Uh, so it's it's my dad. Like, he's just lost it more and more. And he has this, I don't know how familiar you are with my story or my dad, but he's notoriously well known for um, writing letters to his fan club. That's what he calls them, like his fan club. And so he has people that go like, check my social media and you know will will print photos of like the kids and me and my post and keep him informed and then they mail it to my dad so he does not have internet access and so I have people these women I mean I'm sure you're aware of women with like serial killers right like in prison and it's been going on for 15 years with my dad so I have these women that email me and recently one Instagrammed me, emailed, she hit like every social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and email saying like she was talking to my dad on the phone and she, you know, she could, she could vouch for herself. My dad could vouch for her. And she was like, you know, talking to me on behalf of him and to call her. And I was like, no. <laughs> and I mean, this isn't abnormal. This is pretty normal. You know, because I have people that stalk me all the time. You're a writer, survivor, fighter, advocate. How how is it that you want to take your story and help others? People started reaching out right away, saying like something in my story was helping them, you know, with with their own forgiveness or their own, you know, mental um, illness or their own background of abuse or being a crime victim or being related to a criminal. And I never... It was just something I sort of fell into. Uh, I had spoke for like women's advocacy and abuse, like at my church before I had spoke to the newspaper. So there was like several steps process to get where I got. But once those stories started coming in, even though I couldn't personally respond to them, I realized there's something here that's positive. I people say like you're the you're like lemonade from lemons, you know, like. My dad caused so much harm. Like he destroyed seven families. He destroyed my family. You know, he had massive. I mean, if you think about what Golden State has done in communities in California, my father did that in Wichita, which is much smaller, extremely impacted, you know, generational impact to this whole community. I mean, you can't even add up the cost of what my father has done, like the loss of life and the loss of generations from that life. And so that if I can make some impact for good. It's kind of like balancing the scales back, you know? And so that's, 
I didn't ever intend to do this, but it's sort of like I was just made for it or like the times made me. And you get to a point where you're like, where you have one life, what are you going to do with it? I understand people being quiet and not doing what I do. I have to do this to heal. Well, I'm glad that you're talking to me and I appreciate your time and um, in sharing your story. Thank you. And I appreciate your patience and kindness. Again, her book is called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love and Overcoming. I'll post more about her book, some case photos and videos I found on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, my new YouTube channel and social media accounts under the same name. So please check those out. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Now a post-episode shout-out to an investigator who took the time and wrote a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Again, writing these reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. It's easy, it's free, just hit five star, hit subscribe, tell a friend, write a review, include your real name and your podcast name. If you're a podcaster, I'll give you a proper shout out. Well, this one comes from Pod Lover, and they write, great pod, listen to them all. In my top five to listen to, accurate, compassionate, edited well, good voice, solid cases. Keep it up, dude, post more episodes. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, more episodes on the way. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>